You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I always thought that things were as serious as cancer, but Jason Michelli has another idea. In a book that's part memoir, part theology, part handbook for pastors visiting cancer patients, his recent book, Cancer is Funny, does not shy away from the harrowing, the grotesque, or the confessional, but teaches us readers to stop trying to win wars on cancer or to figure out where to put the cancer-shaped piece in God's jigsaw puzzle, encouraging us instead to receive the gifts that God has already given us and to speak honestly about the reality of this undeniable human experience. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to have Jason on to talk about the book today. Thanks for coming on board, Jason. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start by saying that, you know, this book is not exclusively about theology, but that's mainly what I'm going to talk about just because that's what I'm good at. Uh, But you can feel free, Jason, whenever it suits you to tell us stories about how you tried to get sued by oncology nurses for sexual harassment because there's a lot of that in this book just a normal day at the office yeah i I was gonna say i mean i you know i if i had known going into this that i'd have this many jokes about jason michelli's body parts i don't know if i would have agreed to the interview but here we are um i want to start though with what you say about the humanity of christ what did jason the cancer patient come to learn about the incarnation that Jason, the Princeton Seminary student, wasn't ready to know yet? Um, it's a good question because, um, you know, yesterday was Ash Wednesday, and I, I can remember probably the first lucid day I had after my surgery and first day of treatment. Um, it was Ash Wednesday. Um, and there was just something about me laying in the hospital thinking about my congregation here kind of going on with the the motion of worship without me. Um, and I think it was like my inability to participate in that, that got me thinking that, um, yeah, as pastors and seminary students and, you know, theologians, we're trained to think about the incarnation in terms of God taking flesh to share in the sufferings of humanity. Um, but my own experience of suffering it just occurred to me that, you know, the incarnation is a way that we participate in, in Christ's suffering as well. Um, that Christ gives us a template for how to go through our own suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. When you were talking about this, I definitely detected some of that David Bentley Hart influence that you often talk about, that uh, what you need is not a God who is subject to what you are subject to, but you need a way to suffer that is better than the ways you know on your own. Yeah. Uh, I mean, did, did I rightly detect some DBH there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the way I put it is, you know, when when you're actually suffering and facing your own mortality and, and you know, f- likely death, and, and you feel as though the Grim Reaper has, you know, snipped you over good, um, you, you, don't, you don't need a God who shares in your pain. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's cold comfort, um, to anyone, but the comfortable, I think, um, that what you, you want is a God who gives you, um, through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, a, a way to navigate and steer through it. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, one thing that is, again, just core to human experience is fear. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, you, you note rightly in this book that, you know, we Americans, and especially American Christians, uh, we're just kind of allergic to fear. 
Uh, when someone says they're afraid, our first instinct, and I mean, I'm, I'm talking about myself as much as anyone else here, is to start offering reasons why there's no real need to be afraid. Mm-hmm. What do you think is behind that allergy to fear? And, and on a pastoral level, I mean, I know that the New Testament occasionally comes up in the lectionary. What do you do about those passages where people are told not to fear? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is hard to navigate because, I mean, do not be afraid is something that God or Gabriel or Jesus says over and over and over. Oh, again. yeah. So, so on the one hand, um, to, to have no fear is a very biblical conviction, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I think there, there, there is in our culture in particular uh, this allergy to fear such that it, uh, we, we think of it as an antonym to faith. And I, and I think that's wrong, and, and I think it's untrue to you know, our genuine human experience. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason I think that, like two things, I, I think by and large, um, Protestants in America are formed by the Enlightenment. Um, and that we have legitimated our faith according to its utility. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not sounding very funny, by the way, but that's that's. that's <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think the way that we have legitimated and defended um, the value of Christian faith is, is by showing its usefulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the ways that, that we show its usefulness is um, by helping us get through struggles and obstacles. Um, and so it's a tool. Uh, to keep us from being afraid. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons we, we think that way. And, and, I, and I think another way is that um, profoundly so, all of our fear in America is in some way a, a fear of death. Okay. And so I, I think I, th- I think it's uh, it's a fear of death to, to such an extent that it's a denial of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, on the one hand, Christians are people who are told by God not to be afraid. But on the other hand, I mean, again, it's the day after Ash Wednesday. We're, uh, we're the particular people in this death-denying culture who are supposed to acknowledge and embrace our finitude. Um, okay. and, and I think in that context, embracing and being open and articulate about your fear uh, is a way of giving expression to the fact that you know, from dust we came and to dust we'll return. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, this is something, you know, I've encountered in, you know, Stan Hauerwas's writings. I know he's another big influence on you is, is this wrestling with, on the one hand, you know, uh, like you said, I mean, the, the frequent refrain, do not fear in the New Testament. Uh, but there's a sense there, and I, and I think you're grabbing onto it too. And I don't know what to do with it either as I'm demonstrating with my murmuring here uh <laughs> that the way that and i don't know if I'd, I'd locate it in the enlightenment so much as in sort of american optimism that you know if you even acknowledge that there might be a fear for love to drive out then you've already failed mm-hmm. i don't know well, I'm, like i said i'm just playing around with that i mean leave it to a humanist professor like you to to you know want to value the enlightenment that's uh, <laughs> oh <laughs> i just try not to blame it for everything because then you know when i really want to unload on it you know it hits harder but it's i i mean it's it's um it, you know when you you are experiencing the american medical industry firsthand i mean mm-hmm. everything premised on not um 
getting out of this life a lot. I mean, everything is premised on that. Yeah. Um, you know, from the way the doctor talks to you to the endless battery of treatments that are available to you to mm-hmm. the licensed clinical social worker who comes to talk to you, you know, about meditation practices um, to, to keep, get you out of your fear. Um, and, and, and so I, I do think acknowledging your, your fe- fearfulness you know, it is a way of acknowledging that, you know, one way or the other, I'm going to die sooner mm-hmm. right, you know, or later. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, you know, the, the fear also names, you know, that my life is a good gift from God and the people in my life are too. Um, and so the fear of losing that is, you know, I think the, the basest, most primal expression of my gratitude for them and my love for them. Mm hmm. And I just, I don't want to lose them. Right. Well, one of the things that this book does pretty regularly is, I mean, you kind of upend some of the word associations that American piety assumes rather than it argues. So, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that, you know, Americans like to pair up is faith and grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually when we talk about those things, when we talk about faith, it is, a sort of settling in on something that is unchanging, something that's reliable. Uh, and you, like I said, you challenge that uh, when you say that, you know, grace is inherently unpredictable and that faith always involves something changing. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you're a pastor. What do we gain mm-hmm. pastorally when we allow for faith to be a moment of change rather than a simple reference to the unchanging? Uh, I mean, I think what we gain is, um, honesty (laughs) and, you know, we avoid this, we avoid what I think a lot of Christians suffer from is this, you know, cognitive dissonance between what they think they're supposed to believe and what they're actually experiencing. Okay. Um, you know, that, that, yeah, I, I freaking hate that contemporary Christian, like, you know, song that talks about, you know, God being the rock that doesn't change. I, I can't remember. Rock, I don't even know what it's called. Um, okay. <laughs> and, you know, but I think, you know, how firm a foundation is probably a hymn that gives a similar expression. And, uh-huh. you know, and, and so the, the idea, like, I do believe um, as, as a Christian, I do believe that God is unchanging, um, that that's just a basic definition of mm-hmm. what God to be. Um, but, you know, what makes that a particular faith claim is the fact that everything else in creation is changing constantly, mm-hmm. um, including the landscape of my life. Um, and so, you know, faith can never be unchanging because, you know, A, I'm not God and B, you know, everything around me is changing. And so, you know, faith as the lens through which I view everything, you know, I'm constantly going to be seeing different things, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and really in that sense, you know, faith is a trust that you grab hold of God and, you know, God will drag you or pull you or carry you through these changing circumstances. But yeah. things are always things are always going to look different because where you are on that train called life is always going to be, you know, look different. So I think um, so faith, you know, faith means change. I think I think that's just um, what I feel to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and grace like that's what irritates the crap out of me is this kind of cliched piety that um, presents God and faith as a guarantee. 
Um, okay. If you pray hard enough, this result will happen. You know, if God is with you, you will be healed. Um, all that stuff. But, but, you know, but look, if grace is an unexpected, undeserved gift from God, that means we can't rely on it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, um, and, I, and I have this, you know, like, I have enough Carl Barton in me to know that, like, we can't, <laughs> you know, like, when we preach and when we consecrate the Eucharist, like, we can only trust and hope that God will show up. We can't make mm-hmm. God show up in the preaching event uh, or, or in the Eucharist. Um, and I think, you know, those are representations of what is also true in our life. Um, that, you know, we we can trust that somehow, some way, some time, you know, God will show up in our lives. But that doesn't mean that, like, you know, when we're counting on it, it'll happen. And it doesn't mean that the result will be what we thought it would be. Right, right. You know, and, and I think, and this occurred to me, I, I talk about it in the book, this occurred to me right when I found out um, that, you know, I, I, I had this massive tumor and I needed surgery the next morning and, you know, I'm staring at the folder that the surgeon gave me and, you know, and it, it just occurred to me and just like a real gut level, um, you know, that resurrection is a surprise, um, mm. you know, like, like it's a surprise. And so it, it can't be, it's not a guarantee and it can't be relied upon. Mm-hmm. Um, you can only wait for it and hope and pray. Well, in light of that, I mean, what does faith, faith or faithfulness, however you want to render that, what does that mean as a theological virtue? If we're trying to encourage that disposition uh, among Christians, uh, which, you know, that seems, you know, fairly mm-hmm. straightforward. Uh, what does that look like if indeed faith is unexpected or if grace is unexpected and faith has changed? Sorry. I think, yeah. Uh... I mean, it, I think, and I just thought about this right now. Um, I think what it means is that for us, faith and faithfulness is is what it was for Jesus, right? Um, you know, I mean, Jesus, you know, prays in the garden to be removed from the path that he's on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and what we find at Easter is, that, you know, that all of this was not Jesus's will. It was God's will. Um, that that you know that prayer comes true, and so what I, I think faithfulness means for Christians is that we stay true um, to this life and witness and example that we find in Christ, trusting that in some way God will vindicate us the same way that God vindicated Jesus through resurrection. Okay, all right. So we maintain our integrity. We trust that we will be vindicated, even though in the moment the circumstances are unjust. Sounds kind of like Job. <laughs> well, I, I mean, before I get to Job, I mean, like, it's, yeah, I mean, like, there's two other, I mean, like, yeah, you know, Jesus dies not knowing that God's going to vindicate him. Okay. You know? Like, that's not a certainty for Jesus, so it shouldn't be a certainty mm-hmm. for us. And, you know, Christians believe that on Holy Saturday, Jesus is really dead. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. You know, so, like, the idea that we're somehow going to, you know, escape a fate, you know, worse or better than Jesus is just I, I, egocentric. I think, I don't know, a naive maybe. Um, but yeah, Job faithfulness. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, as listeners to our network know, uh, I teach Job every year to freshmen, largely to torment them, uh, you know, shake them up a little bit. I love Job. I read Job probably as much as I read any book of the Bible. 
Uh, you don't have a whole lot nice to say about Job in this book, so it's I'm, such I'm, a I'm, long book. <laughs> I'm here to be educated. Oh, wow. well, what what is wrong with Job, Jason? Uh, what is wrong with Job? I mean, other than the you know redacted prose ending that kind of tacks a happy ending on, like I mean, I I don't want a new wife and kids. I want my old wife and kids. <laughs> like, like, well, that's that's just morally repugnant. Um, yeah. So the. Yeah, the redacted prose ending to Job, I, I find revolting. Um, but, I mean, I give Job crap in my book because, you know, and, and obviously Job's, a, you know, a fable, so I'm, I'm just being playful. Um, but I, I give Job crap because he's reduced, you know, suffering to just this um, cast of one experience between him and God. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and what I what I experienced um, quickly in, in my own experience of cancer is that, I mean, you, you really have to be a self-centered prick to just wonder why me, God. Um, <laughs> you know, because, you, I mean, you're, you're sitting, you know, like, I would go to the doctor every day when I wasn't being treated. Um, mm. so every day I'm spending at least 30 to 45 minutes in, in the oncologist's waiting room surrounded by people my own age, children, old people, married couples, mm-hmm. lesbian couples. I mean, like, you know, the whole variety of the human community. And, and so, like, the question that any, like, I think theologically sensitive person would ask isn't why me, but why, why them or why us? Okay. Uh, you know, and so, the, like, for me, the real, the, the theodicy question isn't why is this happening to me. It's why why can't God create a better world than this one? Um, okay. You know, if this is the best possible world, why does it have to have suffering in it? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, or, or, or the evil suffered that is cancer. I, I think that's, um, the, so that's the perspective I had. And, and I don't think Job kind of gives voice to the suffering of the human community. I, I, I do think, you know, Job does a good job of, giving expression to how suffering can just feel arbitrary. Um, you know, cause like the fable is very intentionally set up as this arbitrary conversation between God and the accuser. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think, so it, it does do that. And, you know, I like Job's friends always get crap from interpreters and preachers, especially um, for saying all the wrong things and being the wrong kind of churchy people and wanting to explain away Job's suffering and mm-hmm. cast judgment mm-hmm. upon him and, defend God and all the wrong things. Um, but, you know, as someone, you know, suffering to a lesser degree than Job, I, 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 I do find sympathy towards his friends because they show up and sit with him, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, that is no small thing. All right. All right. Um, yeah, I'm not going to turn this into a show about Job because that would be mean. <laughs> you wrote a book and we ought to talk about it. That's fine. Um, <laughs> Job's a better book. So. Um, I'll, I'll admit that, you know, aside from, you know, dissing on Job, I'll, I'll, I'll just set that aside. You know, I, I can forgive that. Uh, but one of the connections that you make that really kind of taught me, that kind of caught me by surprise, pardon me, uh, is the connection that you make between your experience as a cancer patient, and then the New Testament stories of exorcism. Uh, Hmm. That is not a connection that would have occurred to me in a hundred years. How can Christians learn to speak of cancer from these passages 
without expecting what the Bible ain't promising. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I'm a good, you know, Western mainline Protestant who's been taught to, you know, demythologize all of these stories or interpret them in an overly political, you know, resist the empire kind of way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so like, and, and neither one of those really interests me. And I think they're both they're they're both versions of the same sort of move. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but you know, I. I you know, we always want to like explain away. Oh well, those you know naive first century Christians—they thought illness was a form of demon possession. Mm. Uh, we all know, really, this you know guy had epilepsy or, or something like that. Right. Even though the Gospel of Mark d- differentiates between the two, <laughs> so but I, you know, know why, why? Why would we read the text, right? But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, and so there's just like disregarding how patronizing that that is i think mm-hmm. to, to the saints that come before us I, I i think there's something profoundly right about the language of possession to describe like you know critical illness um mm-hmm. you know that my cancer robbed me of my vocation and my appearance and my you know energy um my libido um, I mean, it, it took, it took over my life, um, mm-hmm. in a way that like, I don't know that, I don't know that modern science or the medical community has a better language for it than the New Testament's language of, of possession. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, I mean, that there is something alien and foreign, um, binding and, 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 and holding me captive, um, from, the life I believe that God intends for me, you know? So I, like, I mean, I, I, I think that language can move, move, move the furniture around if you let it. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I mean, when I read that, I mean, it, it occurred to me that, you know, I probably should have been thinking about that in those terms all that time anyway. But I mean, when, you know, you compare the litany that you just laid down for us, you know, all of the things that are taken away, you know, compare that to the, you know, the demoniac at Garasa, you know, who mm-hmm. has lost family and vocation and health and safety and all those things. I mean, it make, makes a fair bit of sense. So, I mean, I, like I said, I, you know, I, I read this book and I said, okay, I really should have been reading those stories that way all this time. So I, I do thank you for teaching me to read that story at the very least. Well, I think, unint- I mean, I didn't realize it at the time, but I, I think probably who taught me to read that that way uh, or prepared me to read it that way. Um, you know, are the alcoholics I know both in my family oh, okay. and mm-hmm. in my congregation that, um, I mean, our tradition gives us the language to know that sin isn't something we do. It's something we're captive to and something mm-hmm. that holds us in bondage that it's, you know, a power with a capital S not, you know, little S sins that we do. Um, and so I knew that, but I, I never really appreciated that. And so I think, you know, my experience of suffering and cancer and and having my life taken away from me by this, you know, I I was able to understand um, something that, that I've heard expressed by alcoholics before. um, Okay. But really couldn't empathize with uh, on a personal level. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to hark back to uh, when we met in person about a, what is it now? A month and a half ago uh, at, at theology beer camp in Redondo beach, California. Um, 
it, it, it seems like more than once you uh, kind of let drop in our conversation that you're not convinced by process theology. Uh, what, you know, I, I tend not to be either, which was uh, an interesting experience spending five days among the process people. Yeah. Uh, but it <laughs> uh, comes early. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even if you hadn't told me that and I read this book, I would have seen this trio of sentences on page uh, 105 in the book. Listeners, you need to go buy the book. Uh, and here's how the sentence read I quote, Things shouldn't be like this. God knows it. God will do something about it. Close yeah. quote. What does a resurrection hope look like next to the optimisms and the deisms that you've encountered throughout this story? Yeah, I th- um, that's a good question. Well, thank so you. I, <laughs> I, so my problem with process theology, uh, and Trip Fuller, if you're listening, we can argue about this later. Um, you know, so on the one hand, I, I think process theology makes the mistake of conceiving of God as just another object within the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, um, you know, the, the idea that God is unchanging is only a problem uh, to be solved or remedied if you think God is, is somehow an object within the universe um, that is constantly changing. Um, so I think it makes that mistake. Um, but on a more personal level, I, I think the mistake it makes is the same mistake that a very strong Calvinism makes um, in that uh, when God I- I is so intimately connected or dependent upon creation, um, you, you're really forced to say as a process person or, or, or a Calvinist, um, you're forced to say that the world as it is, is, is the world as God would have it be. Um, and I think maybe that's Trip calling you to, to argue right now. Yeah, could be, could be. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think uh, it, it forces you to say that the world as it is with all of its suffering um, and privation uh, is, God, is the world that God would have it be. Um, and instead, I think what the New Testament gives witness to, and, and even like a heresy like Gnosticism understood in a way that process theology doesn't, um, is that you know, the world is fallen and is a shadow of what God wants. Um, Mm -hmm. And what we see in the incarnation and resurrection story is God, you know, invading our world in the flesh um, to redeem it and to defeat that which holds it captive. Is that that what you're looking for there, Nathan? Well, I mean, and also the... uh, I I guess here's my problem with it and, it and it's interesting that you just made that connection between calvinism and process because i just offered that same connection to uh tom ord when i interviewed him for this show uh and, and he actually granted it which i did i didn't know if he would or not oh. is that both of those brands of theology are so terrified by the by the threat of contradiction that they will say, you know, there are certain parts of the Bible we just have to say are off limits. They don't mean anything anymore because they would contradict what these other parts say. Uh, which, you know, to a person like me, you know, I, I, I cut my teeth on, you know, folks like N.T. Wright and Walter Brueggemann and that sort of biblical theology boogie-woogie. Uh, you know, I mean, that's not really treating the Bible as anything but a set of proof texts for what you were already going to say anyway. There's no capacity there for the biblical text to challenge what you were going to 
already assert about the world, right? So, I yeah. mean, this idea that, you know, if we are taking a look at, you know, the Psalms of Lament, or if we're taking a look at, you know, the prophetic oracles about a future restoration, those mm-hmm. sorts of things, and the, the most we can say about them is that God's going to ask the world nicely to shape up, that at the very least makes those people a little bit misguided and maybe entirely delusional. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's, that, that, that's what I appreciated about your book. You know, after I, you know, spent a week there in Redondo and then read Tom Ward's book, I said, okay, this is, this is a book that, you know, actually says, what does, you know, the text of the Bible say and what, why, how might I have to change my mind now that it says that? Hmm. Is that, yeah, is that I, fair enough? I, I, you know, maybe that makes me a, a closet Bardian as well. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, for me, it's it, like, and this is, I mean, this is what I learned from David Hart as mm-hmm. my first teacher right after I became a Christian. Is, yeah. Um, I mean, I, at bottom, I have just a, a moral objection to mm-hmm. the implications of that way of thinking. And, and it's just that, I mean, if everything in the world is is somehow directly causally related to God, then, mm-hmm. you know, God may be all powerful, but God's not worthy of worship. Um, that I, I think uh, the only coherent belief that comes out of a faith centered around the cross is that God doesn't truck in suffering and evil. God suffers it and, and vindicates it, um, but, but God doesn't use it. For, for any of God's ends. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, I, I just, I, I recoil at, at, at any theology process or Calvinism that requires us to say um, that God, that su- the suffering of the world um, or that natural evil or, or any of it is in some way a tool uh, or a reflection of God's will. All right, fair enough. I want to turn to this idea of martyrdom, because this is another one where, I mean, you kind of laid out this new way to think about martyrs and martyrdom that I hadn't really considered before. Um, You talk about the phrase to lose one's life, uh, which is one, of course, that, you know, comes from Jesus himself. And you say that it means something unexpected to the cancer patient. So again, speaking to us as Jason, the cancer patient, what is this life thing that we read about? And what does it mean for the patient to lose it? I mean, I mean, I, I guess I hinted at it earlier with mm-hmm. one of your questions. It's, um, it's not just to like die, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. to, to lose. I mean, I, I, all of those attributes and things in my life that, that defined me, I, I lost, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it's, you know, it's like, I think the, the visual I had for it um, in my book is, you know, displacement theory. Um, you know, that like my life is this container of, you know, good things and, you know, this giant thing called cancer dropped into it. Um, you know, and there's only so much room. And so a lot of that stuff spilled out, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, I mean, I I lost my sense of usefulness. I I lost, you know, my vocation. Uh, I, I lost, um, you know, for periods I, I lost not my faith, in a convictional way, but, but, uh, my ability to feel it and feel the presence mm. of God. Um, and so it, 
you know, Jesus saying that in order to gain our life, we have to lose it. Like that, that wasn't just about my mortality. It was about, um, you know, cancer forsaking a, a lot of the, the, the ways in which I defined myself. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to, I, I want to actually like let you be funny here for a moment because we've, nah, kind of we, we've got, we've kind of been heavy here. Right. <laughs> uh, and actually, I mean, since we have, <laughs> started talking about this. I actually had another experience with this because my daughter uh, sprained her foot at school and I had to take her to the orthopedic urgent care. And uh, one of the questions I had to pose to her, and she had no idea why I was laughing, and this is your fault, uh, is one of the questions was, on a scale of one to 10, how bad is your pain? Oh gosh, I hate those questions. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I asked her that, and, I, and first of all, she looked at me like I was a monster because I was laughing at it. And then she said nine, and I, I'm thinking, are you sure it's a nine? Because, I mean, you sprained your foot. But I wrote it down dutifully. Um, tell a couple of the stories about this this one to ten scale because, I mean, like I said, th- this in my mind is the funniest thing in the book. Really? I, that's, that's funny. Um, well, I'm not going to be able to be funny about it. But it, it was just so <laughs> at every stage of uh, my experience uh, for like a year of cancer, surgery, chemo, all of that, like all the terrible side effects of chemo, like the the question they want to ask you everywhere um, is on a scale of one to 10, what is your pain level today? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so like, because I'm the person I am, I, you know, first it occurs to me that like, okay, well they want to have a, a numeric scale for everyone that they're asking. And so this assumes there's some sort of like universal sensation of pain scale. Um, and so like, I I just couldn't, I couldn't get to the point where like, Oh, well, like, this isn't like, what's a 10 for me, even though I thought about that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, what's like, you know, in, you know, the expanse of the human experience, what is like a 10 on the suffering scale? Um, you know, so I'm like, ah, like, you know, I've got terrible, terrible constipation from all of the chemo drugs. And I, you know, have gained like 10 pounds of just poo, uh, and I feel like, you know, John Hurt, an alien, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and I'm calling the emergency doctor line because I just, I feel like I'm going to explode uh, and just, you know, uh, and so they want to ask me like, what is your pain level today? You know, is it a one or a 10? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, but like all I can get to is like, well, a 10 has got to be like, you know, the Holocaust, right? Like what, you know, <laughs> as terrible as I feel with constipation, like, like surely it it can't measure up to people ovens. Um, and so I, I, and I irritated the crap out of everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, that was the best part of the story is that the nurses just started rolling their eyes preemptively when you asked that question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause I I am like, you know, like, well, have you seen Sophie's choice? Like I can't imagine (laughs) like how hard that would be. Um, but you know, and, and like underneath all that is just this, um, you know, it occurred to me that, you know, pain, you know, isn't common at all. I mean, there is no such thing as general human experience or, or universal mm-hmm. human experience. And I, I don't believe that. Um, and, and, you know, pain is unique to each of us because we're all unique to God. Um, you know, and, and, and my takeaway from that was that, you know, what is true of pain is true of discipleship too. That, um, you know, Jesus lives the life God has him live. And that doesn't mean we have to live his life. We, we mm-hmm. have to live the one that we've been given as faithfully as we can. And there's no, 
Yeah, and that gets back to like the don't be afraid and all that. Like it's you know, like I think we're called to just you know do our story as faithfully as we can. Um, mm-hmm. And there's no one size fits all or right right way to do that. Um, and that a lot of Christians in particular would do well to stop policing the emotions and feelings and thoughts of other people who are suffering. Okay. I want to pose a follow-up question to that because I think you're right that, I mean, one of the realities of human experience is that it is particular, mm-hmm. uh, that, that my pain 10 is not your pain 10. And, you know, Sophie's choice is, is somewhere on a different scale. And, and yet we have a common text together that, that gives order to the way that we talk about these things. Mm-hmm. In your tradition and mine, we even have a lectionary so that we're all reading the same part of that text on a given Sunday. So how does that commonality relate to that radical particularity you're talking about? Well, I mean, even though I, I host a podcast about the lectionary, it's called Strangely Warbed. You can find it in iTunes. Uh, I mean, there's a part of me that thinks the lectionary is just designed to protect the church from idiot preachers. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the lectionary is fine. I mean, I, I do think that, like, I mean, it's amazing that, like, in the institutional church, we have all of these measures that have been developed to protect people from mediocrity. Um, uh-huh. Having said that, um, I, I think the common text that we have is that God works through first a, a particular people called Israel and then a particular Jew from Nazareth. Um, and so, I mean, the reason I don't believe in universal human experience is because the text that, you know, people of faith have been given is a text of particularity. Um, okay. And so I, I think we're all, what is common to all of us is that we are given these texts to um, in flesh individually and you know in communities um in, in a way that makes sense to the context of our lives okay well i want to answer your question I don't oh know yeah, yeah 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 you're okay. doing great you're doing great but but i, I want to tee up process again because you're great when you start <laughs> taking swings at it and again you know just trolling low hanging fruit well you know trolling trip fuller is always fun so we might as well, well we're here I mean, what I told Thomas Ord when we interviewed him, I think uh-huh. it's Robert Jensen who says that, you know, the trouble with process theology is that it's such an attractive alternative to Christianity. That, that was Roger Olson. Yep. Roger Olson. Yep. Yep. Okay. Oh, I like Robert Jensen better, but okay. That's well, fine. you know, um, but one of the things that you say that I think is one of the, the great takeaways from this book uh, and I mean, it's got a, a great pedigree in Howard Wass and David Bentley Hart and Walter Brueggemann and all the people I so enjoy reading. Uh, you say that Christians don't have an explanation for pain. Mm-hmm. So first of all, what do we have instead of an explanation? And second of all, if we take to the job of a village explainer, what kinds of speech do we give up when we make explaining our main job? <laughs> I think we give up the gospel. Uh, okay. I really I think it's as basic as that. But um, yeah, I, and, and this gets back to what I was saying before that, you know, morally I have a problem with um, any suggestion that God uses suffering um, to some end. Um, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, what I think, you know, that God takes flesh, enters the world that we have created, and we respond to that by putting him on a cross and shoving him out of the world. Um, and that God responds to that with Easter. Um, uh, for me, that's just kind of my fundamental framework. 
Um, and, and so I think, you know, for Christians, we don't believe um, that there is any good to suffering, that there is no, you know, utility given by God in it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that God doesn't use suffering. God takes it on himself. Um, and so I, I think, you know, f- and this is kind of a pregnant statement, but for Christians, I, I think the ultimate meaning of the cross is that there is no meaning to crosses um, mm-hmm. other than the ones that we ascribe to it. Um, but from God's end, there, there is, there can be no meaning to it. Um, and so I, I think, uh, you know, if that's true, then, you know, as a Christian to explain suffering um, is, is to be speaking a far different language than the mm-hmm. language of the gospel. Um, and I think, uh, on a, like a, it's a different angle, but, you know, I, I, I think, you know, there's, there's two other things, you know, like, so if there is an explanation behind suffering or behind, you know, evil, um, mm. other than God, uh, you know, we should be worshiping that. Okay. And not Jesus Christ. Um, and so I, I, I you know, so I, I don't think you can get be. I don't think you can get behind Jesus when it comes to suffering and evil, um, because that's who God is. Um, and, and and then, like on a more fundamental level, I, I think that um, to ex- the need to explain um, betrays a need to protect God um, in a way that I find, un, you know, unfaithful. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, God is God. I'm not, and I, I don't have a need. I don't have a need to protect God from you know someone else's feelings. Um, okay. You know, I just. I mean, especially when we're given texts um, that are filled with doubt and raging against God, and you know, faithlessness and fear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, the, the idea that Jesus dies asking why God has forsaken him. And yet we feel like we can't allow other people to ask that same question is, is just strange to me. Um, okay. So, I, so I, yeah, so I don't believe we have been given as Christians an explanation for suffering. I think that what we see born of the cross is not an answer, uh, but a community uh, of cruciform people. Okay. Yeah. And so well, my experience of suffering did not yield me any answers, uh, you know, but what it did give me was, uh, you know, a people who through their baptism carried me through this experience. Mm-hmm. And yet, alongside all of that, I want you to bring another reality into it. You maintained a, an almost mantra through this whole experience. God's not doing this to you. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you're not going to explain pain, but you're also not going to say that you're not even going to entertain the possibility that God is doing this. Why? Um, so the reason for the mantra is, I mean, I mean, I've already beat this horse, but so I, I don't believe that God does stuff like, I, I don't believe God gives cancer to people for any reason, um, mm-hmm. you know, that they'll grow in their faith or be enlightened or be humbled or any of that crap. I, I, I do not believe that. And yet there's something about the experience of suffering on like just a personal existential level. Um, mm-hmm. and and I'm, I suppose it's part of the grief process um, that even if you kind of rationally, convictionally don't believe that, um, 
I, I still found myself as I went through the process, particularly at my low points um, where I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go on and I, and I couldn't see any hope um, at the end of it. Like I still found myself asking that question, you know, why is God doing this to me? Even though I, I didn't believe God was doing it to me. Like it was just, mm-hmm. so I, so I think, and I think probably that's why that's such a, a common, you know, sentiment voiced in the Psalms is that there's just, there's just something about the human experience that leads you uh, to wonder that, um, even if that's, you know, not actually one of your convictions. Hmm. Um, and so I just, you know, I mean, I, I made that one of my mantras because I, I you know, I, I found myself asking it uh, despite myself. Hmm. Well, I want to cue up one more line from the book and just kind of let you run with it because I, I don't even know what to do with it. Uh, okay. This is on page 162 of the book, and it's it's short sentence, five words. God is not in control. <laughs> Keep calm. God's not in control. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, and so, I mean, that reflection comes out of uh, the, the same point in my experience when I'm wondering why God is doing this to me. Um, but I, I think, you know, what you find in the Psalms, especially, and, and it's interesting that most of the Psalms uh, are Psalms of lament, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and some of them are, are, you know, vulgar in their pushback against God. Um, and so I, I think, um, you know, what we find in scripture is that, especially in the Old Testament, um, is this awareness uh, among Israel is whatever it means to say that God is in control, uh, it means that God is not in control in any way that we would understand it um, or be comforted by it. Um, That there is, I mean, like, you know, it's in like the very first line of scripture that like there is, you know, you know, God's spirit, God's breath sweeps across the dark waters, the chaos, you know, and brings mm-hmm. forth light that there is this element in creation um, against which God is contending. That's in Paul, um, you know, but in some sense that, you know, God is not in control of um, completely this side of the eschaton. Um, and I think, you know, for me, just kind of the, the theological side of that is just that, um, you know, God has created a world of secondary causes. Um, and so, you know, if there's a lot of things in the world that, you know, you could say God's responsible for, um, as the first cause, um, but not, God is not, you know, the direct cause of, um, you know, and so there is something called cancer out there in the world that I, I don't believe reflects God's will, um, and is in some sense, you know, in rebellion to him. Mm-hmm. So in other words, our prayer, and, I, and I'm going to probably badly uh, paraphrase. Oh, and I can't even think, think of his name now. Uh, God and the uh, creation and the persistence of evil. Do you remember the, that author's name? No. Ah, uh, it's Jonathan something, and I'm going to remember as soon as we sign off today. Um, but, I mean, you know, the most memorable line from that book, he's a, a Jewish theologian, uh, is that the, uh, Bibli- the Bible's prayer is not to explain evil, but to call on God to blast it away. Yeah. 
And yeah. it strikes me that, I mean, that kind of a prayer, I mean, is the kind of a thing that, you know, fits well with your project here. I mean, you know, this is a God to whom we pray and to whom it is right to pray like the Psalms pray, uh, even as we don't have the sort of magical control over this God they can say that God will definitely, in this case, do what God has done in other cases. I mean, is that is that a fair yeah, I, pic- I, picture I, of things, or am I getting you wrong there? No, and I think it's, um, I like, I, it, you know, it, Christians are different in that, you know, you know, Christians are made, not born. But I, I, I there's something to be said, I think, that a Jew is a Jew, whether they want to be or not. Um, mm-hmm. That, like, God is God and we're just kind of stuck with him. Um, and like, you know, this can be a saving relationship at times, but other times like, you know, life is and like, we don't understand it. Um, and that God seems an insufficient companion at times, uh, in the midst of it. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's just, that's just, that's just the reality of, uh, our lives and, you know, the world that God has given us. Um, there's, we're, oftentimes reluctant lovers. Well, at any rate, I cheated and did a Google search. It's John Levinson. John Levinson. Ah, so, yes. <laughs> sorry. I, yeah, I know that guy now, yeah. Well, Jason, I want to go back to the book's introduction as we kind of wrap things up here. Uh, okay. You say that other books about cancer, uh, especially Christian books, and especially books that people gave you as gifts, are inadequate in a few clear ways. And I think that's at the very least related to Christian theology that is mm-hmm. in analogous ways inadequate. So as we kind of wrap up here, talk to our listeners, what kinds of problems in American Christianity show up in American cancer books? Gosh, <laughs> um, sentimentality. <laughs> I think that's at root. Um, I, think, uh, I think there's a rot at the heart of you know, pop American Christianity that, um, is best expressed by the word sentimentality, um, that it's, it's not embodied or incarnate or Mm -hmm. authentic. Um, it's devoid of pathos. Um, and so, yeah. And I think the the way that gets manifested in a lot of the Christian books that I was given, um, by very good people for very good reasons, um, is, you know, they were designed to, you know, protect God fix me, um, you know, present the faith and prayer as a tool, um, to achieve, you know, some end, uh, or, you know, we're trying to encourage me, um, to go through and suffer and persevere through my cancer in a particular way, a quote unquote Christian way. Um, and, and, and I do think, you know, sentimentality is afraid of um, rawness and mystery uh, and tragedy uh, and, 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 you know, rawness. Um, and so, I, so I, I do think the sentimentality we see in Christianity is in some way, uh, you know, an attempt to protect God um, or, you know, or, or protect the culture that we want, you know, that goes under the, the, the label God. Um, and, and, 
you know, I think I say in the introduction, you know, what, what I realized as soon as I was diagnosed is the number of people, men in particular, in my congregation and in my community who were, um, my, my cancer called up some ex- unresolved grief experience uh, of their own. Um, and so I was determined to, you know, it, it made no sense to me that, you know, my, my role as pastor is to, uh, in some way, model how to be a Jesus follower for them. Um, and so it made no sense to me uh, now that this, you know, one of the most significant things that had ever happened to me to do it behind closed doors. Um, that I live every other part of my life in a fishbowl. And so I was going to, you know, live this part of my life in a fishbowl. Um, and I thought the the most helpful way I could do that is um, to do it as honestly um, and authentically as I knew how with, you know, the language that occurred to me and the thoughts and the questions and the emotions that came to me. Um, because I think all, all of that stuff is safe and, and valued under the word that we use as incarnation. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, that like, it's, you know, God doesn't take on, you know, humanity in some sort of generic fashion that it like in some way, all of our humanity and all of our warts and blemishes and questions and doubts and fears, like all of that is in some way like residing, uh, in the humanity of Christ. And so, so it's all, it's all fair game. Um, and, and it's all, you know, uh, acceptable to God and it's all, you know, appropriate, to give voice to and to share and to try to look at it in the light of faith. All right. Well, Jason, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word today. What about cancer, humor, Jesus, Phil Collins, or whatever else do you want our listeners thinking about as we finish up here? What's on my mind is, uh, you know, so yesterday I went to my oncologist for the tests, like my pre-chemo tests. So I'm still doing chemo once, like one day a month. And so I went to do my lab work before chemo on Monday now. Um, so I went there um, and my oncologist, you know, took a, a box of latex gloves and flipped it over and was drawing the standard deviation for um, uh, years until relapse for mantle cell lymphoma. That's the cancer I have. Um, Cause I'll, you know, so I'll never be in remission. I don't, yeah, your listeners should know that. So uh, it's, it's just a constant companion with me now. And so I had this experience of him drawing the standard deviation on Ash Wednesday on the back of a box of latex gloves. Um, and then I went from my oncologist's office to uh, a ho- the hospital to see a guy in my congregation who's about my age and who got sick with cancer um, around the same time as me. Um, and he thought he was out of the woods and his came back with a vengeance. Um, and so I get there uh, and the palliative care doctor is talking with him when I come in. Um, and then as I'm talking with him, uh, the licensed social worker comes in to give him this like workbook to, you know, in which he can write down stuff about him so that his you know four-year-old son will know who he was. Um, and then the chaplain for the hospital comes in uh, and gives us both ashes um, and tells us to, you know, remember that from dust we came and to dust will return. And it was this incredibly, like, pregnant moment that, you know, my mortality is just like a shadow that follows me around. Um, but I'm I'm really no different than you. Sorry, Nathan. 
you're going to die too. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, you know, I'm just, now I'm in the, the stage of like getting used to living with uncertainty. Um, but I think that's, you know, can be a, a, a virtue of, of Christians. Not funny at all. I'm sorry. I, uh, <laughs> so a, a Jew, a rabbi, and a priest walk into a book. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> the book is funny, though. Trust me. Get it on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, folks, the, 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 the unfunny is my fault, not Jason's. I'll go ahead and say that. <laughs> Jason, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you for having me, Nathan. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.